Today we're in Isaiah 49. We're going to hear the words of the servant. He's called the servant. Now, I don't want there to be any mystery. I did this in Psalm 42, the last time we talked about the servant of the Lord from the book of Isaiah. I just got it out right at the beginning, and I'm going to do it again today, because you might be asking, well, who's the servant? And I want to take the mystery out of it, because we want to get into what, what the servant is about. Uh, this message about the servant in the book of Isaiah is prophetic, and it's pointing to the coming one. And we know when we read the New Testament, his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the servant. So this written hundreds of years before Jesus about the servant is pointing to him, Jesus, who is the servant. And so everything we read today is about Jesus Christ. The purpose and the calling of the servant is twofold, and both are related to salvation. The servant is going to bring back God's Jewish people to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Isaiah 49. And the servant is going to bring in Gentiles from the nations to become his people through faith in Jesus Christ. In this way, salvation will reach to the ends of the earth. That is Isaiah 49. It's appropriate for us today, as we hear the message of the servant and what he's going to do in his saving work, to be called to faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you'll come to faith in Jesus Christ if you're not a Christian today. And you hear this message and you don't know him. I hope today something will stir in your heart and the Holy Spirit will draw you and you'll become a Christian today. And that all of us would be shaped by the vision of the work of the servant that is put before us in this chapter. That our lives will be shaped, we'll be taken up into the grand vision of God. May the Lord grant that. Now we're going to look at the whole chapter, <clears throat> but I'm going to spend most of the time in the first six verses. And so those are the verses that we're going to read. If you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said... I labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in his eyes, in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. So you'll remember a few weeks back when we were in Isaiah 42, we were introduced to the servant of the Lord. He simply goes by, my servant, is what the Lord called him. And here he is again in Isaiah 49. We're going to see him again in Isaiah 50. We're going to see him again in Isaiah 52 and 53, maybe one of the great servant chapters of Isaiah. And then he'll show up again in Isaiah 61. The servant isn't given a name in Isaiah. He's just designated the servant. Who is he? Well, the Lord had many servants. He had prophets, and he had priests, and he had kings. 
And sometimes the whole nation of Israel is called the servant of the Lord. But what's interesting is often when the nation of Israel is called the servant of the Lord, it's in the context of the nation's failure to be faithful to the Lord. The servant in this passage and the ones in the last part of Isaiah that we'll see are obviously different. This servant is faithful. He does something for, he does something on behalf of an unfaithful people. So he can't be the people of Israel, and he can't even be one of their prophets, priests, and kings. The servant passages in Isaiah stirred anticipation among God's people for someone who would come. This servant was someone who they began to see would come in the future, a Messiah. And until we get to that time, they're wondering, who is it? Until finally we get to that time, as the unfolding of the word brings more and more light on who this servant is, we come to see that he has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. Because the servant passages of Isaiah are applied to him in the New Testament. And Jesus himself applied the servant passages in Isaiah to himself. Maybe you recognize Jesus when we were reading it says in verse 1 that the servant said that he was named by name in the body, in the womb of his mother. Do you recall Luke 1? When the angel declared to Mary that she conceived by the Holy Spirit and was, was going to give birth to a son still in her womb. And he said, name him Jesus, named in the womb. And the servant said he's, his mouth is like a sharp sword. He's like a a, a polished arrow. Don't you remember in Luke chapter 2 when Simeon, there in the temple, first saw the baby Jesus coming into the temple? And he said, this will be, he will be a sword piercing to the hearts of people. And again, Simeon said, he will be a light to the Gentiles. We see Jesus all in this. The servant passage in Isaiah is about Jesus of Nazareth. We saw in chapter 42 a few weeks ago, I almost want to preach that sermon again because it's so wonderful what it says about the, ser the servant then. That he was filled with the Holy Spirit, that he opens blind eyes so that people can see the truth of God, that he brings people out of spiritual bondage and prison. He's a light for the nations. He leads his people. And those who are his by faith, when they are bruised, he does not break them. Oh, how beautiful that is. When they are bruised and battered by life, the servant does not break them. No, he binds them up. And when our flame of faith is just barely distinguishable, he does not extinguish it. No, he fans it into flame. This is the servant of the Lord. Today we come to chapter 49. And the servant, it is through the servant that salvation goes to the end of the earth. We're going to stay with the servant for several weeks now because we are moving toward Good Friday and Easter. And we are moving toward Isaiah 52 and 53, the great servant passages. But here in Isaiah 59, we have what I am calling a theological vision. You need one. I need one. We need one so desperately. Isaiah 49 gives a particular theological vision. 
related to the unique role of the servant who is Jesus Christ, related to God's work and purpose for Israel to glorify his name, related now to God's place and purpose and work in his church, Jew and Gentile together as one new man, Ephesians 2, in Christ. We're going to look at the particulars of this chapter, but first I want to spend just a minute talking about the theological vision. One of the main and constant struggles for Christians today is that we have a very limited vision. We have a very small vision. We're limited to here. We're limited to now. We're limited to current perceived needs and challenges and desires and goals. And so we walk around this world with our eyes only about one or two steps ahead. Now, in some respects, that is so understandable because we have to take the next step. We just, we have to go home today and do the next thing that is waiting for us to do so that we can live. We really do live in the here and now. And even as I say that, your mind may have gone to the thing that you've got to do when you go home. And you may have gotten a little bit of tension on the inside. Okay, that's understandable. We live there. But if all we are doing is taking the next step without a vision of the end, then the next steps become more difficult for us. And sometimes we actually take missteps and we can't see God's work because we don't have vision. And so taking one step after another without seeing the great end in sight, we might grow weary. We might become defeated. In fact, we might even change paths altogether. And this is a reality that many people on the path of following Jesus Christ don't have vision for the great end to which he is taking us, which we are going. And one step after another only brings more and more difficulty. And we say it shouldn't be this hard to follow Christ and people change paths altogether and go another way. But what would it be like if we had a theological vision? A vision for what God intends. What would it be like to have a vision for what God is doing, for what God is going to do, where all things are headed, for what God is using to do it and how he's going to do it? And what would it be like to have a vision, God's vision, and then understand our place in it? That changes everything. Steps on the path to following Christ with his church toward the great end would then be purposeful even if they're difficult and they are let's be realists life is hard and following Jesus Christ sometimes at least temporarily makes it harder because of the pressure and the tension but even when difficult we would remain on the path because we have vision we know the great end. With theological vision, our sights are beyond the immediate and into God's future, which includes us. And then even as we take those next steps, 
the ones you've got to do today and this week, the tasks waiting on you to do life and make life work, doing the next thing, we do it with greater faith, hope, and love because we see the end. Now, what does all that have to do with Isaiah 49? Everything. Because the servant, as we just read, is speaking to a people who have lost their theological vision. If we skip ahead to verse 14, these people who are being written to and spoken to are Jewish people in exile in Babylon. And in verse 14, their crisis emerges, their heart in their crisis emerges. And they say, the Lord has forgotten us. The Lord has forsaken us. They don't know how to take the next step. They don't have the energy to take the next step because they don't have a vision for where the next step is actually going to take them. Their vision is small. And so the crisis of the moment, which is very real, by the way, it's very real. We're not downplaying the crisis. These people were in exile. They're in Babylon. They're God's people. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. At least, yeah, at least now they're going there. But the crisis of the moment has utterly discouraged them. And they are paralyzed. And they are close to giving up on their faith altogether. They're very close to just giving up. But God has his people. He has his remnant. And he will not let them do that. He's going to work in their lives. They need to be comforted. They need energy. They need faith. And they need hope. They need to move forward. But where are they going to get it? They're going to get it from vision. They're going to get it from seeing what God has put before them about the great end. But they don't have it. And so the Lord is restoring it. Oh, I pray that God will restore our vision today. I pray he will restore our understanding today of not only what he's doing, but our place in it so that we will carry on. So here's the text. We're going to take it in three parts. And as I said, most of the time we'll spend on part one, the first six verses. But here in part one, the first six verses, the servant speaks about his own calling. And we see the central point, the central vision of what God is doing. The second part, the Lord is going to speak about his work through the servant. That's verses 6 through 13. And the third part, the Lord is going to speak to his people because they've lost heart. And he's going to give them a sustaining vision. That's verses 14 through the end of the chapter. I'll repeat that when we get there. Point one. The servant of the Lord is speaking about his own calling. Now, we've already said that the servant, we are understanding as the word unfolds and light shines, we understand the servant here to be pointing to Jesus Christ. So what we read here, we're reading about Jesus and how amazing it is for us to be let in. I don't know if you understand what you are holding in your hands, how amazing it is to be let in to the mind of of Christ as he is contemplating his own calling in this world. It's amazing. And we're being led in to this dialogue between the father and the son. And so it starts this, verse 1, the servant says, listen, give attention, coastlands, people from afar. So we get the sense here immediately that the work of the servant is for his people, Israel, but it's going to expand to the nations, the coastlands, the people afar. And then verse one, verse one, the second part, he says, the Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named 
my name. So again, it doesn't take much to project forward and read in here a virgin conception. As the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived by his power, the power of the Holy Spirit, and a very purposeful pregnancy. In the womb, he's called as the servant. In the womb, he's named the birth of the Messiah, all this by the sovereign hand of God. The birth of Jesus has been brought down. It's been brought down from this sovereign work of God in all of history to a form of a fairy tale. We need to return to it. I think in July we should talk about the birth of Jesus so none of the other stuff about the holiday would be around it. Just so we can, for a moment, come back to the seriousness of what's going on here. It's very powerful. Verse 2, he says, The Lord has made my mouth a sharp sword, and the Lord has made the servant a polished arrow, which means that the servant, Jesus, is going to come and speak the truth, and he's going to pierce hearts. Remember Simeon said that in Luke chapter 2. He's going to pierce hearts. He's going to convict people. He's going to reveal sin. He's going to bring people to their knees in repentance and then, and then to their knees in worship before him. But he says he's hid. He's hid in God. Hid in the shadow of God. Hid in the quiver of God until the proper time. And we see in the New Testament, Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, this hidden one, the servant, is now just openly revealed. His name is Jesus. Colossians 1 says it so powerfully and beautifully. It says this was a mystery that was hidden from all the ages. You know, you can think about the people in Isaiah's day. They're reading, who's the servant? Where is the servant? There's mystery. It's shrouded in mystery. But as the word unfolds and we come to the New Testament, and we see the Apostle Paul, hear the Apostle Paul saying in Colossians 1, the mystery of the ages has now been revealed. And what is that mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is being revealed. Verse 3, the Lord spoke and said, you are my servant Israel. Now, wait a minute. We thought the servant was Jesus. How is it the servant Israel? Well, Israel is a name that was first given to one man. His name was Jacob. In the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was then called Israel, one man. And then after that, the nation that came from him became Israel, was called Israel. And now we hear that the servant, back to one man, not one man, but the man, Jesus Christ, is now called the perfect Israel. This is who he is. Verse 3, the Lord will glorify, will be glorified through the servant. That means that Jesus is revealing the glory of God. To reveal the glory of God means to reveal the beauty of God. Jesus shows us in his person how beautiful God is. And we're not talking about his physical appearance. In fact, Isaiah 53 says it's not his physical appearance that, that was attractive to us. It, it, it's not that Jesus, he's not saying that Jesus was such a, a physically beautiful man that he reveals the beauty and the glory of God. No, he's talking about the person of Jesus. His nature, that he's the son of God and he took humanity to himself and became God-man and came to this world and lived a perfect life and revealed in everything he said and he did all the beauty and the glory and the righteousness and the grace of God and then left aside that glory to go to a cross to be crucified on our behalf. What love that is that one would lay down his life for his friends. This is the beauty of Christ and be raised from the dead, and ascend to the Father, and now be declared Lord. He, the Lord said, in my servant I will be glorified. Jesus shows us the glory of God. But what's interesting in verse 4, the servant is speaking, and he says, yes, I'm going to reveal, you, you say I'm, I'm, I'm all of these things, and I'm going to reveal your glory, but I said, I've labored in vain, and I've spent my strength 
for nothing and for vanity. Wait a minute, is the servant discouraged? Does Jesus ever get discouraged? Did he ever get discouraged? Well, I don't know what you would call it, but he felt something that sure seems a lot like discouragement. For instance, Matthew 23, after a ministry, after a life and a ministry among his own people who rejected him, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered you and your children to me as hens, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So yes, there were times in Jesus' life when he was discouraged because he was human. He was weary physically. He fell asleep in a boat that was on a sea that, in a storm because he was tired. He was mentally and emotionally weary because Jesus was fully God and fully man, human. But look at the rest of verse 4. He believed. Surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. That means he believed that God would reward him for being the servant and for his service to save people. Then we come to verses 5 and 6, which is the central point of this whole chapter and which is the theological vision that is put before us today that we want to find ourselves in and let guide our lives. It's two parts, verses 5 and 6. The first part, verse 5, And now the Lord says, Still on the Lord, the Lord who, the Lord who formed me, the servant formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring back, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in, his eye, in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. The first part of this central part of this theological vision is that the purpose of the Lord for the servant, the purpose of Jesus is to bring back Jacob, that is Israel, to the Lord. The Lord has strengthened his servant Jesus for this purpose. The Lord has honored his son Jesus Christ for the purpose of bringing back a remnant of Jewish believers to himself. People wonder, especially today, what is the future of Israel? What is the future of the Jewish people? And there's so many different perspectives on this related to both ethnic Jews and the state of Israel. But what we know by reading this verse, by reading this verse and by reading Romans and by reading the book of Ephesians, other places in the New Testament, what we know is that the Lord's vision and the Lord's great work through the servant is to bring back his people through Jesus Christ. The way back to God is through the servant Jesus Christ. And the Lord will bring many. Many of the remnant will come back to God through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. We long for it. We pray for it. And verse 6 is another part of this theological vision. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In other words, the Lord says, yes, I'm going to, through my servant, I'm going to bring back believing Jews to myself through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And more, I am going to bring believing Gentiles, the nations, 
to myself through the same way faith in my servant the Lord Jesus Christ so that it will be said salvation now has gone to the ends of the earth this is the theological vision brought people Jew and Gentile alike brought to God through faith in the man Jesus Christ to become one new man Ephesians 2 and it's beautiful it's what God is doing it's the grand work of God in this world and it is absolutely sure to happen it's happening and it will happen the Lord's word stands forever his purposes cannot will not be thwarted I don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. But we know. Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6, will happen. It's a saving vision. Salvation is in no one other than Jesus Christ. It's a salvation that reconciles to God and all the beauty and gifts that come with being reconciled to God. God is moving all of history, his people, his church, and by grace through faith, you and me in that direction, that saving work. And it is a sustaining vision. By grace through faith, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are included in this vision. Whatever else happens in my life and whatever else happens in your life, and I say this because we are, we are like the exiles. We have our own crises that we're dealing with. You're sitting somewhere today. We are all sitting somewhere today wondering what tomorrow is going to be. And we don't really know, do we? But whatever it is, the sustaining vision that keeps us moving forward in faith is that we know that someday in the future, working now and will be in the end, this saving vision will be brought about by God. In all seasons of life, we pursue this vision. We seek first the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There it is. The servant, Jesus Christ, has spoken. And this is what he is about. The second part, the Lord now speaks about his work through the servant. Verses 7 through 13 is the second part. The Lord now speaks about his work through the servant. In verse 7, he says the servant is despised and rejected. And we know that's the case. Isaiah 53 is going to tell us the same thing. And we certainly see it in the gospel as his own people, more than once, picked up stones to throw at Jesus to kill him because of the things that he was saying about God. But there will be a remnant there will be a remnant of both Jews and Gentiles who come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even kings, it says, even kings representing the nations will bow before him. Because why? Because God has chosen the servant. Think of that. God chose the servant, Jesus Christ, to be the savior of his people. And therefore, Jesus Christ will save his people. Because God chose it. That's the work that God will do through the servant. Verse 8, the servant is given as a covenant. Look at it, look what it says, as a covenant for God's people. And that means that the servant himself, Jesus Christ, is the one who secures the relationship between these believing people through him and God. You remember Jesus himself said, His blood is 
This is the blood of the new covenant, which means this blood secures by removing sin the relationship between God and these people. Verses 9 through 12, by the servant, prisoners are going to be called out. This is a spiritual statement, and I am so grateful for it because I look back at my own history and my own life, and I remember that I was a prisoner enslaved to my own sin, and the Lord, by His grace, called me out of that prison. He's still working in my life to overcome sin, by the way, but He called me out of that prison. And the servant will feed, verses 9 through 12, the servant will feed the people. He'll give them drink. He'll protect them. He'll protect the called out people, the people of faith. God's work is going to prosper. It is going to prosper through the servant, through Jesus Christ. It's going to. Again, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we know in the end God's work will prosper through Jesus. Verse 13 it's like Isaiah interrupts himself. He's so excited to write this and preach this. And he says, So sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth, and break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people. He will have compassion on the afflicted. Rejoice, rejoice. What is your joy? What is your joy in this life? Here is our joy in this life, that God has done his work in Christ to save us, that we belong to Christ and that we are not our own that we have been bought with a price and we will be brought all the way to glory. Salvation is our joy. But the people, and that's the third part, the people, they couldn't see it. Their vision was so limited. They, could, they couldn't see past the next step. They couldn't even see the next step. There they sat in exile, and Isaiah has poured out this beautiful, magnificent theological vision of all that God is doing in verse 14, but, look at verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. It is so hard to maintain vision and joy and comfort and assurance when you're right in the middle of a crisis. And I understand it. We all do. We, we can all raise our hands to that. In the middle of exile or stress or temptation or trial of, of faith, testing of faith, in the middle of all that, it is so hard to maintain vision. And all of us at some point in life might think, has the Lord forgotten me? Has the Lord forsaken me? And the Lord says in verse 15 and 16 to these people, no, no, a, a woman can't forget her nursing child. She can't stop having compassion on the child in the womb. And, and even if she could, he says, I can't. Verse 16, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. What do you see there? Do you see a tattoo? Or do you see a, do you see a nail print? What's there? You write stuff on your hand when you don't want to forget it. It's possible that if I turned your hand over and looked at your palm right now, you'd say something like, work on taxes. <laughs> yeah. Something to remind you, I got to do something today. 
You put things on your hand to remember. So however we're engraved, whatever this looks like, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. God says to his people, I'm not going to forget you. What does he say is going to happen? Now, you've got to read this when you go home, because I'm not going to have time to read it all, but 17 through 23, verses 17 through 23, you've got to read this when you go home, and you'll find out what he's going to do with his people. But here's something interesting, verses 19 through 20, it says this. Well, okay, maybe I'll read this one. Surely, surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow. Listen, you will be too narrow for your inhabitants, and those who have swallowed you up will be far away, and the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Now, that's poetic language for this, that when God does his work, those who in Zion say, the Lord has forgotten me, the Lord say, no, 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 no. When I do my work, I'm going to bring in so many believers, Jews and Gentiles alike, that there's not going to be enough room for them all in the land that you say is forsaken. Now, of course, there's going to be enough room. It's poetic. He's saying he's going to bring in a multitude of people. He's not going to forget his people. He's going to increase his people. And the multitude will come from the nations. And the Lord says to them, I'm going to deliver you. Look at verses 24 through 26. He says, you're like, you're like prey in the hands of, a, of the mighty. You're like captives in the hands of a tyrant. And I'm going to deliver you from both. And then we come to this final verse. And it, it just sums it all up. And it's so beautiful. It says at the very end of verse 26, Then, then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob, I can't wait. All will know. This is a world of such self-exaltation. We lift the names of human beings so high. They're on such pedestals. They're revered. Names, the names of a, uh, it seems to me like the names of a handful of people drive a whole economy. And you remember last week, I will, give, I will not give my glory to another. There's a day coming when the work of God, the grand vision of God, the grand activity of God through the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to result in all flesh knowing. I, we want we want to know him personally. We want to know this savingly. But however he is known, either in, in salvation or in judgment, all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is where God is taking all things. And it will be a beautiful day. And if we don't believe it, if we don't believe it, we can't see past the next thing. Or we can't even see the next thing. If we don't have this theological vision, we can't see it. We're just locked in to right now. And then what? Then, what? then panic. Then panic. Then despair. Despair sets in when people can't see beyond the, the, the immediate. And the immediate is dark. And the Lord says, lift up your eyes. Your redemption is coming.
Lift up your eyes and see. We're praying that God would give us this vision. Here it is, the theological vision of Isaiah 49. It's a vision that keeps us in faith and it keeps us faithful. It's a vision that keeps us on Christ. Christ is central to this vision. I mean, if you ever, if you ever hear anybody talking about something that God's going to do without Jesus Christ right in the center, it's not what God's going to do. He has made this abundantly clear in both Old and New Testament that what God is going to do in this great grand vision is done through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's central. It keeps us focused on Christ. This vision sustains us when we're tired and weary, when we're tried, when we're in tribulation, when we wonder if the Christian life is worth it. This vision sustains us. This vision doesn't tell us what to do every step of the way, but it tells us that when you take the next step, God is taking you one step closer to the grand vision of being like Christ and the revelation of his glory. That's what it tells you. You keep going. This vision keeps you in church. It really does. There's so many Christians who are just wandering away from church, floundering in their Christian life, floundering without even a congregation to be a part of because they have no vision. They don't have a theological vision. The vision is for now. Well, if church doesn't fix now, why bother? Well, why bother is, is because it's the church that Jesus Christ is carrying along into this vision of glory. It's the church that's testifying to this vision of glory. We don't go to church because of our vision. We go to church because of God's vision. It keeps us, you see. Oh, what a beautiful thing. Yes, we need comfort. Yes, we need encouragement. Yes, we need hope. Yes, we need all this. And where does it come from? When God, by His grace and in His, in His grace, just opens our eyes to be able to see. So what I want you to do this week, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, try, I'm going to try to do this every day this week. And I ask you to join me. Every day, let's rehearse. Let's review. Let's renew the theological vision that God has put before us in Isaiah. And if you really need to narrow it down, just take 49, 5, and 6. Chapter 49, verse 5 and 6. And just, you can go the whole Bible. This is, by the way, this is all through the Bible. It's not just this one passage. But just for this week, take that and go there and review it, rehearse it, renew it, think about it for just a few minutes. And then sec- that's the first thing, rehearse. Second thing, find yourself in this. Find yourself in this. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are in this vision. You say, Scott, I just want to get through exams. Okay, okay, get through exams. But don't forget, whatever happens on that exam, God is taking you somewhere with his church into his glory. You say, I just want to, I just want to, I just want to get my taxes done. Get them done. But don't forget, whatever the bottom line on that tax statement, God is getting you. God has a vision. God has a plan. God has an intention. Ask Him to show it to you and walk by faith. Maybe it'll be, I need to become a Christian. That's how you get in on the vision of God as you trust His Son, Jesus Christ. Do that today. Father in heaven, thank you.